0: We're sort of showing our, the power of our brain, right? Or the, like, how clever or creative we were. Uh, we have a natural tendency, I think, to, to try to do things like that. And oftentimes, those result in answers that are more clever than they need to be. Date, October 2016, episode 144. In this episode, Randy J. Hunt, VP of Design at Etsy, Talks about organizing teams, diversity, the pizza rule, being effective over clever, novel solutions, and how small changes can lead to reducing errors. How do you like to organize teams? I mean this may not sound particularly surprising, but I I like for teams to be diverse in the sense of you know both sort of skill level and experience, but also maybe desire for what to have happen. Next, you know, at their own sort of personal level, maybe to make a counter example, you know, a team of three senior designers who are all like hoping to be managers or something just doesn't, it's not quite the right makeup for building a great product at the moment. You know, their motivations are not complementary; They're sort of all the same. Where if I had a, you know, a really detail-oriented, you know, junior designer and maybe a design manager who is great at helping people understand the overall product narrative, and maybe another, you know, more senior designer who's actually sort of great with, I don't know, difficult personalities or something, then I'd be like, that's a great design team to pair with this particular maybe engineering team, because yeah, there's a couple of difficult personalities there or something. You know, I think a lot of it is that sort of, it's like skills diversity, experience diversity, and personality fit. Because I find, you know, when people click, it's great. And when personalities get in the way, it's, it's awful, you know. I mean, that's like I really try to manage around that stuff because I'm also not too big, right? Yeah, you know, I'd say roughly. It's funny. And you've probably heard these things a million times over, right? There's that sort of like pizza rule or whatever. You know, if they could all share a pizza, it's a good size of team. You know, mm-hmm. they can all sit around the table, less than ten. You know, everybody has these things. I think there's not a hard and fast rule, but I think uh, you know, feeling like there's maybe a a designer for every. Three, four, or five engineers feels pretty good, at least in our organization, you know. And yeah, it's probably less than 10 people working on any like discrete group thing. And in fact, as they get to more of the feature level, it often ends up being really just three or four people working on the actual thing. You might have another sort of manager or some people doing oversight, but when it comes to executing, it might even be a, a designer, two engineers, and a product manager. What do you mean by effective over clever? Well, I think there's a tendency, not just for designers, but for many people to feel like the answer needs to be, you know, an answer or a solution to a problem needs to somehow be novel, right? That, that that answer is, we're sort of showing our, the power of our brain, right? Or that like how clever or creative we were. Uh, we have a natural tendency, I think, to, to try to do things like that. And oftentimes, those result in answers that are more clever than they need to be. And by that I mean that there's some sort of extra layer of interpretation that has to happen. They're not so straightforward, right? It's a it's the silly name instead of the straightforward name. Or it's a you know, an interesting, novel interaction we've never seen before, rather than accomplishing the same problem with a toggle button that we've seen many times or something like that. And I really think that almost always, effective is better than clever. I think that, you know, the sort of clever choices are have to be reserved for very, very particular moments. Because I think you know, if you have a product with even just a few clever answers and one experience, it's very disorienting for people. And I would rather see the thing work in a very basic elemental way than not work, but have very creative solutions to problems. <laughs> How do you recommend doing research when designing for the web? I mean, this might not be a very satisfying answer, but I feel like my answer is it depends. <laughs> you know, it depends. It depends on the nature of the problem and what it is you feel like you're trying to learn. You know, what is it that you don't know that you're hoping to learn? Answers to questions like that will determine what I think the appropriate sort of research methodology might be. You know, if you're low on resources and time and are simply looking for some input or like quick validation, you know, things like the sort of coffee shop test. Might work, you know. <laughs> hey, random stranger, can you take a look at this? Like, you know, like that may be all that's possible in, under your set of circumstances or something. And maybe that's better than nothing. Are you simply looking to under like validate that a person interprets this basic UI the way you intend it to? That's great, and something like that could work. I think if what you have are you know a few ideas for how to change the user experience in order to shape a particular you know, business metric or something that you're trying to make happen, then maybe the appropriate thing to there, there to do is to actually build those different options and do something like a multivariate test with your audience, you know, an A-B experiment, essentially, and to identify exactly what that metric is, develop a hypothesis about how you think, you know, these particular product changes will influence it, and then run the test and see. Right? Those are two very, very different sort of research methodologies um, because the circumstances are very different. According to your book, small frequent changes lead to being able to better fix errors. Can you maybe please elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I think there's there's really two components to this. So when you are making small frequent changes, or really small changes, the amount of sort of error, potential problem in any one change is reduced, right? So you're, you're basically your change sets are smaller, right? So the... Possible scale or number of errors or sort of changes are are reduced. Also, if something um, Is a problem, you know, or does go wrong, there is an error Identifying what that error is becomes much easier because you have more granular change sets, if that makes sense, right? A change set related to only one or two things as opposed to a change set related to 12 different changes across the, you know, product experience something. So if you need to track it down It is also easier. The frequent part You know, if you have a behavior around making these frequent changes, then once you've tracked down or identified what that problem is, then your ability to fix it, well, one, the ability to fix it is easier because, again, small change sets, right? Smaller sort of potential problems. And then your ability to get that fix released, essentially, uh, is also easier because you've built a, you know, a sort of set of behaviors around changing things frequently, right? So small mistakes Easier to identify, faster to change, quicker to um, to release. Yeah, you know the counter example would be every two weeks we do a release, and so it's got two weeks worth of thinking and changes in it, right? And the next the next sort of diff, <laughs> you know, the previous version is two weeks old with a bunch of old thinking in it. Like a lot of time has passed there. It's much harder to identify where in those fourteen days you know a problem was introduced and what it was, and then essentially you're waiting. Another 14 days to get the fix out, or you're sort of breaking your kind of like release protocol in order to get some kind of change out, like off cycle.